When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's not necessarily about being vulnerable. I think it's about being creative. I think it's more about just being open to the fact that you have more experiences to share than you think. There's a lot going on in your life as an executive that's, that's more than just the work. Bring people into that a little bit. To me, that's vulnerability too. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. The C-Suite full of power, politics, and intrigue, like we see in the popular TV series Suits, Succession, or Borgen? How do you rise there, survive there, and thrive there? Do well for yourself, but also produce superior business results and strategic outcomes. There is a lot of storytelling of what goes on there, and frankly, actually not a lot of hard talk about this world. So I'm excited to have as my guest today, a trusted advisor, executive coach to Fortune 50 executives, Nihar Chaya. Nihar's clients open up to him about their challenges, fears, opportunities, in ways they often can't with those around them. And they do so, of course, under immense pressure, under the immense spotlight. Stakes are incredibly high, as we know, in Fortune 50 companies. And they're there to make an impact and often do that when it's not totally under their control. So we're going to peek under the hood of what most helps top executives and try to do that in a thoughtful and clinical way. A Wharton, Columbia, and Georgetown-trained leadership expert, Nihar Chaya is president of Partner Exec, which helps leaders, very simple, master influence. Nihar is a regular and I would say pretty prolific contributor from reading his content on Harvard Business Review, Forbes and Fast Company. He's also a master certified coach by the ICF, the International Coaching Federation, and selected as a Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches, two of the top markers for excellence in our field of coaching. Nihar is based in Dallas, Texas, but should not forget his roots growing up in the Northeast, South Jersey to be precise. That's coming from me, a guy who grew up outside of Philly. Nihar, first, thank you for publishing such thoughtful articles on leadership and being a personal inspiration for me. I've learned a lot from you and at very precise moments, appreciated your encouragement and tips in my journey to be a writer and as a better coach. Welcome to 97% Effective. Thank you so much, Michael. It is such a pleasure to be with you. I really appreciate the, the chance for us to have this conversation, and it, I've been a big fan of your, your work, and in particular, your latest book. So really excited about our talk today. Thank you. I'm going to start here and have you finish a phrase, okay? And that starts with, the C-suite is like, and as, as I said in my intro, a bit tongue-in-cheek, but there is a lot of drama and politics presented in, in popular TV shows. But it's true. You do, as a coach, have a unique window into what's going on and see inside it. So if you did have to pick a, a series or a movie or something for popular culture that best 
represents the environment in the C-suite and people mm. you work with? What, what would it be? What would it be? Well, it's uh, it, it's certainly hard to to pick one, and it's funny because I one thing that you might not know about me is I'm a big movie buff, and uh, Oscars week is this weekend, which is uh, a show that I love to watch every year. One movie that that I think is is nominated is uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and the title alone right there to me is like very similar to what C-suite executives are dealing with. It's just a constant barrage of things coming their way every day. And then I think, you know, another movie that that I think probably captures it better though is Top Gun Maverick, where mm. I'd say that there's a lot of egos. Everybody kind of is at the top of their game because they got to the C-suite. But there's really no way that the mission gets completed without that shared sacrifice. Uh. And so all the executives I work with, you know, they might have their own individual career path that they they worry about, but they know also that to really succeed together it becomes a high stakes situation. And, um, you know, so there's, there's one Tom Cruise, but there's also a lot of folks in that plane and those other planes helping him. So, so I didn't know you were a movie buff. So that was a great question because I think those really tap into some central themes that we're going to talk about here. And, and you alluded to this, but client profile and what we would call in coaching as kind of the presenting issue what is the kind of typical profile or, or is there a most common presenting issue when your clients come to you and you start working? Yeah, I, I think the, the common presenting issue is this is a leader that generally wants to succeed at scale. And so, you know, you're moving up from like to, a, to your first VP role, your first SVP or your first C-suite and CEO role. As you move up, you really are uh, measured more by your impact on other people and driving results to others as opposed to doing it yourself. And so the presenting need would be like, how do we help them make sure that they're not derailing in that process? Mm. But I think on a, on a more um, conceptual level, what, it really hap- what really happens is that they reached a point where they can't think their way out of problems anymore. Mm. So like logic doesn't work if, you know, it's, it's more of the, the nebulous interpersonal dynamics that really come to, into play with like, as you write about influence and power. But even, even on an intrapersonal level, things like self-doubt and managing um, you know, my own fears and my vulnerabilities and things like that. But yeah, the general presenting issue would be around you know, achieving that kind of leadership at scale. Mm. And you know, the other thing that, that really struck me, I cannot remember who told me this quote, and it was probably more eloquently, is that often as teachers or coaches, you, know, you need to address what they want especially if they're coming with a presented issue, but you often need to give them what they need. And so still at a high level before we dive into some of those topics, you did talk about the presenting issue you typically see. When, when you do boil it down, is that what they ended up needing or where you end up arriving on your journey working with them? No, I mean, in fact, you know, there's an interesting saying that I oftentimes tell my clients that, you know, coaching is the one business where the customer isn't always right. Uh, you know, so I, I'm not doing my job if I'm telling you kind of all the things you want to hear or you could read them in a book, you know. In fact, what, what the, the need, underlying need typically is around recognizing their blind spots. And it's almost impossible for them to do that themselves. Now, they, they might have people around them that give them feedback and things of that nature, but the willingness to actually take that insight and do something with it is, is a whole different story. And a lot of people will, might even have the interest and, and the motivation to do that, but they don't have the time. So the underlying need typically is that, hey, I don't know how people see me. And it might be working for me, but it's not working for, my, for other people. And now we need to start getting deeper into what's the limitation there. Yeah, so it really strikes me, right? For you to succeed and your clients, it's it's a high stakes situation. There has to be a willingness to take in some of that. I mean, and how do you screen for that? Because you're only as successful as your coachees are. And if they're not coachable or willing to hear that, you're never going to get anywhere. How do you look for that? (laughs) Well, I think, I think part of it is, is being very clear on who I can help and who I can't help. Um, so I certainly don't, uh, work with people where I feel as if they're looking for the answers from me or they're not taking ownership. And we're very clear in the beginning of the coaching contract. Um, that's something that I, I like about ICF. They talk a lot about, um, the, you know, how you, you need to contract with your coachee all the time about what are we really trying to achieve here? 
And, you know, we're not trying to boil the ocean. We're trying to see that if there's a gap between point A and point B where you want to be and that you're willing to take that ownership because we, we look at the coachy as naturally resourceful and whole and capable on their own. Um, as opposed to looking for me or looking for somebody else to rescue them, if you will. Right. Um, but I think, I think you make a good point also about the coachability. Sometimes that shows up later. Like in the beginning, a lot of clients will be really excited about getting, getting, you know, learning and engaging in the partnership. And then if I'm observing that they're starting to lose a little bit of motivation or the accountability, I'll call that out. And that actually might be something we explore further as, okay, what's behind that? You know, what, what's going on there? And that provides another rich area for us to explore. Yeah, very, very well said. I mean, that is really the the art and what makes coaching effective that you've broken down there. To go deeper on, you know, three topics that I've really noticed come through strongly in your writing. You, you have tons of articles, and I, I'm going to put a bunch of those in the show notes, but I wanted to hear and talk to you about, is there a top interpersonal skill that you find, because you've been coaching lots of executives for years, that, that doesn't get enough attention, but should, and particularly in this, this upper level that you wouldn't call out and just share a little bit about? Yeah, I would say that, you know, the one skill that tends to come up all the time is just not being able to take criticism and effectively, and, and really from what I mean by that is both in terms of managing it internally, but also sending the message back to the people around them that, you know, they can continue to give me criticism and I'll be okay. <laughs> um, what, what, what we tend to see with in the coaching relationship, because there's so much feedback being given them, given to them from whether it's from me or from their 360 or from other people they work with, it's, it's, um, it can be very humbling. And in, in, in the other extreme, it can be demoralizing. Uh, because, you know, in many ways it's like, you know, like anybody else, nobody likes to really be told that they're not doing well or they're failing or even that, you know, there's certain things that they might've intended to do, but were misunderstood. And what happens, I think it's human nature that leaders, myself, other people, we, we all kind of find a way to cope with that in different ways. So you might find a leader that's defensive. They might deflect. Uh, they might pretend like everything's fine. They might project their own kind of insecurities, um, and, or they might just really get frustrated and start, you know, deciding to retaliate in their own passive aggressive or aggressive ways. And so I think the top skill for C-suite executives that I've worked with, not all of them struggle with this, but it really does come down to being able to, to take criticism in a way that is constructive for themselves, to learn that it's part of the natural way that humans interact that there's not going to, you know, going back to the blind spots, there's going to be a natural um, blind spot you're going to have because you can't see how other people perceive you. And then being able to um, recognize and take ownership for that, that like, I don't have to agree with the criticism, but I'm going to own the fact that I had something to contribute to your perception. Some little portion. doesn't have to be the full thing. Of course, people that criticize you might have their own insecurities that they're dealing with. But there's something in the way we interact that's causing that. And so then I'll say, okay, this is how the behavior, I would say, how can you change your behavior in a way that's better aligning your intentions with their perceptions? Um, but when you wince at the criticism or what I, Michael, I'll, I'll, for instance, I'll, I'll have a lot of executives that will say, you know, I want you to give me the feedback. I want you to, to tell me what I'm doing wrong, you know, but then you tell them and all of a sudden they're not really responding, responding in a way that's supportive. Nobody's going to come back to you and tell you, you know, they're going to prefer not to be around you at that point. And that's where it's strategically not even a good idea to be able to be in a, um, to, to, to separate yourself from that because nobody's going to really tell you what they really need to tell you for you to be successful. And, and when you encounter that, right, so others in the organization may shy away, start feeding you different information, telling you what you want to hear. But you as a coach, I mean, your job is to help them here. Is there a, mm -hmm. every individual of course is different, but yeah. I know you've got some secret sauce in how you, how you help them kind of reframe that. You mentioned getting them to think objectively about it and it's not about them, it's about the impact. But any, any yeah. pieces of wisdom there? Well, I think the first thing that I try to do is, is create a very non-judgmental space for us. So, you know, whether that's telling them explicitly, but really showing them. And, and what I mean by that is starting by meeting them where they are. In other words, 
making sure that I'm not leading with the message because I'm dying to get my point across or I need them to change because of me. I start simply by even asking them, like, this is this happened. How do you think you did? What do you think was the impact? I'm asking them to observe the situation with me. Mm. So we're on the same side of the table here. We're not antagonizing each other. Uh, I would even encourage them to do that with their direct reports or their colleagues as well. Yeah. When you're able to look at the movie together, then you might start asking exploratory questions like, okay, what do you think worked well? Uh, and then, you know, what could you do differently if you wanted a different outcome? You know, and so having those questions from a place of we're exploring this as opposed to this is right or this is wrong. Because, you know, Michael, as a coach, like most things that we help them work on, there is a, a, a counter side to it. Like there's, there's a, a valid case to be made to be the opposite of that in some situations. You know, if a leader, for instance, is, is moving really fast, you know, and he's getting feedback like, yo, you need to slow down. There's a valid case sometimes to, to make sure that they're not being too slow, you know? And, and so everything can be somewhat debatable. And I think that's important to create that environment with, with them to say, I'm not looking at this as a binary situation that you need to change right. and fix. This is really about us being divergent thinkers and thinking about, are we even solving the right problem here? Um, as opposed to looking for the right answer, which usually doesn't exist. And, and to provide this, you know, kind of being on the same side of the table, I love the way you said that, is in getting some of the feedback. And I wanted to ask you this question on, there are many ways to collect feedback, right? There's assessment mechanism, 360, shadowing observation, and everything seems to have a bias, a potential, right? People are not gonna share, they're gonna tell you things they wanna hear, they may say things they don't like, but it's actually good for them. And, and mm -hmm. how do you pull out the best feedback because you're partly in charge of that process. Right. And I think I think this is important for people to hear because it's you want to get feedback and how do you do that in a way that you're getting rich useful information. Right, right. Well, a few things. So, and it's funny you mentioned this cuz I just this morning I was doing some 360 interviews for some clients. You know, a few things. One one I think it does depend on the interviewee and their comfort with sharing information. I had an interview with someone recently where they felt really um, unclear about what to say. And so they were almost saying like, you know, almost asking me to put words in their mouth about it. And I didn't want to do that. So I, you know, I, I want to make sure that this is pulling from them completely. So instead of, so I, I really do ask very high level questions and very kind of open abstract ones. I don't say, are they good or bad at this skill? I just say, how would you characterize this person? You know. How would, what's your observations in general of them as a leader and a collaborator? And then we just kind of take it from there, you know, because everybody's starting from a different place in terms of their perspective. I just want to get their own kind of movie that they're, their, the, the picture that they're painting when they see this person. And then I will start asking them about, okay, you know, what, what do you think is working well as it relates to the success criteria for them? So again, we don't really want to think about whether this person likes or doesn't like this person. It's more around, are they effective with respect to a, a, a very objective criteria in their role? And that might be, you know, their business results, or if you're a function in the company, it might be how well you're, you're working with the businesses. And I'll ask them, you know, okay, then let's look at certain aspects of leadership, your, their communication skills, their interpersonal um, sensitivities, you know, their speed at which they work, all those things, what would you say, are they strengths, are they opportunities to grow? And then I would just say, you know, given what we know about them and your work with them, what would you say are their strengths? What would you say are some opportunities to grow? And then, be, and then if I'm feel, getting a sense that they're not really touching the surface, what I'll usually ask is I'll say, um, okay, when they operate in this way, what, what impact do you think that has on people? Because again, what I'm also interested in is not so much whether they are doing what I think is great or what, I, what the, the interviewee thinks is great. I want to know what impact their general behavior has on people around them, because it might then make people feel like, oh, they love it. You know, they're actually more engaged and, and motivated. Or, you know, this person changes their mind so much that it creates havoc for their team. All those things are interesting insights. And again, we're not looking for like scoring them per se, because this coaching that we do is more around, you know, behavioral grow, um, development 
related to both their their values and both um, success criteria of their company. So, but it's more like thematic, and I think that generally makes it. Um, uh, we're able to kind of val- screen out kind of what the feedback, what's use- useful and what's not useful. Yeah, the power of asking these questions, and you alluded to it. I mean, this is having this as part of your toolkit as a leader working with your yes. team and others, and so many people don't do that. So you just gave a mini masterclass there on <laughs> some, some great ways to how you ask the question and how you frame it. There's this huge theme in your writing of competing and collaborating, right? We're kind of yeah. doing both at the same time. And you've written on you know, how to harness envy, what if someone's outshining you, how to collaborate with people you, you, know, you don't always see eye to eye with. And so it kind of, you know, you've got to be thinking of both of these at the same time, right? Because you've got to collaborate to get stuff done. You don't want to also kind of get walked over. So I'm just some of your reflections on this competition versus collaboration, mm-hmm. this competition versus collaboration environment that you sit in in organizations, particularly the further you go up. I'm very fascinated by organizational politics. I think, uh, obviously, that's a big part of what you work on with power. I think that with with the people that I coach, they're, they're, I wouldn't say that people necessarily present with the idea that like I'm struggling with competition or I'm struggling with collaborating, but it generally shows up later because it, because in that dilemma surfaces a lot of you know, undesirable traits, I think, that they might be going through. So for instance, somebody might not be naturally a jealous or competitive person, but all of a sudden they're like, wow, why am I, why am I so consumed by this issue? Because I want this so badly. And like, I was working with a client who is actually a Buddhist and he, he's a very devout practicing Buddhist. And he could feel that in the corporate world, it was going against all the things he was trying to honor in his practice, which was to say, I'm actually supposed to be okay with uh, the equanimity of, of people, of, of things around me, as opposed to falling into this trap, you know, and knowing it's a trap. But at the same time, he had ambition and, and, and like all of us do. So I write about this in, from, from the perspective of how can you kind of befriend the natural impulses that people have with respect to envy or jealousy and understand that it's just part of who we are. You know, we're, we're taught to be ashamed of wanting and coveting. It's, it's in the, you know, it's in the uh, history of time, right? That it's a seven, seven deadly sins and things like that. But the reality is instead of making it a bad thing, understand that comparison is just going to be always there. It's how we benchmark ourselves in terms of what we're doing in our, in our life, in our work. Um, it's a useful exercise too to gather information. So I think being competitive is is actually a good thing because you're in the game, but you also want to be able to balance that with respect to not doing it at the expense of other things that make you fulfilled in life. Like so many executives I work with, you know, it's not until they've been working for 15, 20 years at maximum capacity that they realize, man, like my marriage is terrible, you know, or I really didn't spend any time with my kids and I don't know how to say no because I know that I want to be, be able to take vacation with my kids, but I haven't said no to my boss and things like that. And I think ultimately that's where it's an interesting topic because competition, you don't want to stop being competitive at work, but you also want to make sure you're, you're being, um, you know, uh, attentive to all the other aspects of your life. Yeah. I love how you lay that out. And it's, (sighs) It's this question, right, as coaches, particularly when there's certain things, this, this example with the, the client who's Buddhist, where there are things that kind of run against their natural inclinations, worldview, mental models. Mm-hmm. And what do you find most effective? Because you, you need to move them quickly, right? It's, it's yeah. not like therapy where we can sit here and talk for 10 sessions. Right. You, you're often expected or they're often expected to shift some behaviors quickly, are there, there's no shortcuts. We know there's no silver bullets, but clearly you find certain things may be more effective. What helps coach people around that? Well, I think it's, it's again, getting back in touch with what's important to them. Mm-hmm. So for instance, you, you know, the, and it's a very simple question, but it's like, how's that working for you? You know, so you're, you're getting consumed by this thing, right? How is that working for you? And, and really exploring that, you know, yes, it might feel like, 
I need to be so so many people who are ambitious and I think successful. Unfortunately, they've they've uh, their mind has been conditioned to believe that if if they continue to be con- uh, ambitious and competitive, only then can they be successful because it worked for them, yeah. right? But until you have a coach, you're not really being you know being having the uh, kind of the mirror put to you to say, but is it really working for you? Because now you're becoming somebody you don't even like, you know. And so we go back to thinking about what are the goals and the values. Now, for instance, let's say you want to become a CEO and you are dead set on that's what I want to be. Um, good. You know, there are lots of creative ways and constructive ways to get there. If you are finding yourself getting into a place of super competitiveness or what I oftentimes see will people, people kind of start working in, in, with hubris. You know, they, they're not competitive in the sense that they don't necessarily have envy of their colleagues or, or want or schadenfreude about trying to see them fail as much as they try to stay in their own lane um, and they kind of withhold information or they don't really see the opportunity of actually bringing people along with them. And that is a mistake because the truth is when you become CEO, all the people that you didn't bring with you are not going to want to work for you. So, so, you know, you have to have a little bit of a strategic point of view here. You, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. When you get the job, you won't have the followership, right? So working with peers, working, working well across your, your um, lateral level divisions and colleagues is so critical. Um, and what's, what's really cool about this is when you change your perspective from a, one of competing against them to um, collaborating and really seeing how we can, we can build something together – it actually can um, minimize that that feeling of um, you know feeling left behind or feeling competitive or the envy or whatever because again you know I think I think on a human level we're all looking to belong in some way yeah. we're looking to belong while also standing out <laughs> right and so you find that balance right but it's like don't stand out too much in which case you're lonely and don't necessarily you know try to be in groupthink where where you feel like your your ambition is being stifled. It's a little bit of a balance. Yeah, it's what you said earlier of uh, avoiding sometimes the binary. You've got to be one or the other, and finding exactly. that that middle ground. Which which leads me to that you know that second area around communication, mm-hmm. and this part around getting feedback is, is so central and kind of recognizing your blind spots, your hidden strengths. So hard because, yes, there's politics and things and perception going on around you. Now, of course, yes, you can, you can get a coach. A coach can help. There's now internal coaches and external coaches. But if we just take this for a minute of what people can do just on an ongoing basis, and if we start with kind of leaders, again, there's a power dynamic, right? So people below you or even peers may be feeding you certain things, may have fear, I mean, how does a, a leader on an ongoing basis, we want kind of that feedback loop going, but rich and, and useful feedback. What do people need to do so they get that on an ongoing basis? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I often find that leadership as you move up is lonely at the top and even more so when people aren't telling you the truth or telling you what, they, what they're really feeling. And that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy because then it's like, well, if nobody's saying anything, then I guess I'm doing fine, right? But then all of a sudden you realize, wow, people are leaving the company or what other other issues that, that get in the way of your success. I think the first thing that I always tell leaders is you got to make it safe for them to give you feedback, you know? And I'm not talking about just like, hey, come to my office. I have an open door policy. I'm talking about really explaining to them that you understand that we're all have, we all have a shared humanity here, you know, that them getting feedback from you as a leader is not something unfamiliar to the, to my client. He's he or she is getting it from their boss too. It's a painful exercise. So I know that it's painful, but I want to lean into that because I know that I can't succeed without you. And I think really having that, you know, some might say vulnerability. I would, I would actually say it's, it's just being honest. Mm. It's telling them that the nature of my job is such that I can't do this without you. And I need to know what you're thinking about me. And also, it's not really even a personal thing about whether you like me or not. It's actually around I need to get as much insight as possible on, on how you're perceiving me. 
and to see whether that's in line with what my intentions are. Because so many times we'll see things where a leader is not liked because of a certain personality trait, but actually their intention was a good one. Mm. It was like, I really wanted to, to help this person, but they took it the wrong way. You know, so it's not really about uh, necessarily this person is failing as a leader. It's actually a miss. Uh, th- these communications are being crossed. These channels are being crossed. You know, th- there's a miscommunication there and there's a there's a misperception of their intention. So I would say to a leader to, to really create that safety it's being is explaining to them kind of why this is necessary for us to have this dialogue and then showing accountability, showing yeah. ownership. Right. This, this, so it's not enough to say, oh, let me know what you think. Because here's the thing. If I, if I ask you, right. Michael, like, Michael, what do you think about me as a leader? And then I never do anything about it. One, that'll kind of frustrate you probably. But number two, you might even wonder, like, what are you doing with that information? Yeah. You know, because did I say the wrong thing? Because he hasn't even responded to me since then. And that's where you have to show that respect to people that like even when I do a 360 for, for folks that is, you know, I'm talking to them anonymously. I tell my leaders, you've got to send a thank you note to them. They took time out of their schedule to talk to me. They didn't have to do that, you know? And so people will say feedback is a gift. You know, the, the, the truth is that actually these folks are really going out of their way and, and out of their comfort zone to tell you something that maybe the, they don't know if you're going to take it okay. You got to make it safe for them by reminding them that I'm really going to put in the work here in return for your candor and, and honesty. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. And you touch on a sharing vulnerability. That word, there is a, there's a lot of fear out there, right, of leaders of, of doing that. We may be getting better. You can, you can <laughs> share your thoughts on that. But what helps people get over that? Because there is this, you know, the, the leader needs to look strong, at least stereotypically. I think we're getting yeah. better at this. We're having more conversations. But is there a, a way to kind of ease into this or you just have to do it? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting um, challenge, I think, to be vulnerable and also to be competent and, and show that you can do the job. In fact, I, I always go back to this, uh, I think it's a, phenomenon called the pratfall effect, which is that, you know, if you, let's say that you're on stage and you fall, you know, what it's called the pratfall, so you fall, but it's, let's say you make a mistake and it's embarrassing. Um, the studies show that basically if they, if they see you as competent, that can actually make you more likable. Yeah. If you're not competent, then it can be embarrassing and probably rightfully so, because they look at you as like, wow, this person doesn't have it together. And what's interesting about that concept is that you actually stand to gain by showing some mistakes, you know, even on purpose, really, mm-hmm. because again, you're not going to have that connection with people unless you're, they're able to see you as, as a human, really. Um, but again, you want to do that after you developed a little bit of awareness that you're competent so that people can trust that you're not just, you know, really uh, unserious, if you will. Um, but I always, oftentimes will tell leaders like, you know, being vulnerable, uh, I think, so I'm, I'm a feeler, like I'm an INFP on the Myers-Briggs. Some people might not agree with the Myers-Briggs. I know Adam Grant just wrote another article about how he hates it. Um, that's fine. But I I will say that I, I know for a fact that I, my preference is more on the F, which is a feeler than the thinker. And what that simply means is that it's true that when I make decisions or, um, make calculations in my life, I definitely go first to how does it impact people um, first as opposed to kind of does it make logical sense. And what that means is that it might be a little bit easier for me to be quote unquote vulnerable because I'm kind of thinking like that all the time. I have my own self-doubts and I'm pretty comfortable sharing that in certain settings whereas somebody else might be really against that. Um, but even people who don't want to share those things, it's not necessarily about being vulnerable. I think it's about being creative. I think it's more about just being open to the fact that you have more experiences to share than you think. You know, you don't have to make every conversation about the, 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 review, the slides that we're going to review in the business process meeting. You know, you could share a little bit about how you were scared this morning because something happened in your family. You know, I don't want to say that that's, you should bring that up, but if it happened, right. sharing it. Um, but my point is that like, there's a lot going on in your life as an executive that's, that's more than just the work. Bring people into that a little bit. 
to me, that's vulnerability too. Uh, it's just being more open and honest about like your real life because we're, we're more well-rounded human beings, I think, than, than we probably think we are at work. Yeah, I often feel we get stuck on words, right? Vulnerability, authenticity, mm-hmm. and then they start to lose their meaning. And yes. um, you walking through this kind of expands, <laughs> right? How you think about that or mm-hmm. what the purpose of it is. You talk a lot about intentionality and being strategic, and I find that really, really helpful. We talked about getting feedback. Mm-hmm. The, the other part, which, which you write a lot is, and, and I love this piece you have around tension-free feedback, because we right. don't like giving it. Leaders who are in the top need to, right? They need to demand influence excellence, but they, you don't want to alienate your people, right? To the, your point yep. you made earlier. So without going into this extensively, keys to help people deliver feedback that's productive and, and very effective, Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so part of it, I think, is uh, what, what I mentioned earlier around the idea of let's let's be on the same side of the table here and let's and make it an interactive exercise in the sense that, you know, nobody wants to hear feedback in a monologue, you know, like as if I'm just going to deliver this and then see you later, get back to work. Uh, it really has to be an exploratory conversation. But I, I will say there's a few things that I think leaders don't do well that I think they could do better at. Uh, one is being very vague about what the success looks like for that leader, for that person. You know, when you start kind of throwing around like, oh, I've been hearing that you've been doing this and so-and-so told me you did that. Like, it's not, it's not helpful. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just gossip, really. And if it's helpful feedback, it'll be tied to some kind of a calibrated or agreed upon, you know, uh, version of success for, for both of you. That's what somebody really wants to hear because it's like, okay, so what? What does it really mean that this person doesn't like me? Why should I care about that? Everybody wants to hear just, you know, I think human nature is such. We want to know why is this important? So really helping them understand the why. And as a leader, it's important also to get get past your own insecurities about what if this person doesn't take it the right way or what if... What if they don't do what I want? And, you know, it really is not going to be helpful if you're always thinking with your own agenda. I always, like I said in that piece in Fast Company, I said, you know, feedback is only as good as it, as it lands. You know, you could give them all types of feedback, good and bad, and they, don't do, they won't do anything with it unless they really accept it. And to, so the job really for the leader is to make sure that they're, they're delivering it in a way that shifts the mindset of that person, that shifts behavior. Um, and the only way to really do that is to get them to be an active participant in, in deciding that. And so you start with, how does this really tie to, to what you want? How does this really tie to what you need to do to be successful? Do you even want to be successful in this particular area? It's totally your call if you don't want to work on it. But this is insight that I'm sharing with you that can help us decide whether this is something you need to start leaning into or, or maybe just deciding to be honest about it and say, I can't work on it. Yeah, is it drawing from all the skills of an excellent coach <laughs> and, and applying yeah. those as, as, as you say those that really, really stands out. And I mean, a, a last question on this, because you also brought up the vague feedback. And this is one of the things that always my clients and those I see who are rising and I get this, you know, I hear it a lot on 360s that I do for my clients, executive presence. So... Mm-hmm they don't look like a leader, right? You get this very vague piece and executive presence, which there's tons of definitions out there. There's Mm -hmm. a stereotype, which often resembles the dominant culture in organizations. And it is, you know, so I feel like I have to dig into, well, what does that mean? (laughs) What do you mean by that to get more specifics? But I think this is a very frustrating area for particularly underrepresented groups who maybe don't look like the current mold of what, you know, our stereotypical, let's just call it, you know, leadership as a masculinity contest in certain places, mm-hmm. um, a very dominant, decisive, you know, show gravitas. How do you define it or, or focus on building it with your clients? Yeah, it's, it's such a big term. And, you know, I'm just like we talked about vulnerability and other topics, authenticity that get thrown around a lot. I oftentimes will tell my clients, we need to get very clear on what this means. And, and I do think that defining that in 
from two lenses is very important. One is what does it mean to them and what does it mean to the culture or the organization around them, the stakeholders around them? Because, you know, I can tell you, like I work with um, startups and, you know, companies that where if you wore a suit, you get laughed at, you know, and I you work at I work at companies where if you if you wear jeans, it's 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 not working, you know, it's not acceptable. And of course, things have changed even since we started our careers uh, where, you know, you would actually wear a blazer and things like that. I remember what, for one time I coached a company, you know, as you and I both are from the East Coast. And when I moved to Texas, I was coaching in an oil and gas company and they told me I was way overdressed. You know, you look like a consultant. You got to <laughs> stop wearing this this suit here, you know, and it's a real deal, real thing. And so being aware of kind of what the general um, wardrobe and, and that kind of thing is very important. That's a big part of executive presence too, I think. Um, but then when you, but then you can think about the idea of also what impact do you want to have in terms of presence with people and with the audience that you're trying to influence. And, and even then you can say there's a subset there. We're talking about executive presence when you're one-on-one or one-on group. And then there's executive presence when you're on the big stage, you know, and I would say for me, it's always very important to think about presence you know, the word presence really is important here. It's, are you being present to the people you're trying to communicate with? And, um, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll find people who think they're really great at speaking, but they're kind of speaking at people. They're not really speaking to them. Yeah. Uh, and, and that awareness of what I'm doing, how I'm coming across and how I'm landing with people, if you don't have that awareness, you'll generally fall into the same old habits that you've always done, which could work in half the time, but the other half, you know, people are, lose, are lost and they're, they're just kind of zoning out. Yeah, yeah. this piece around awareness, um, really, really well stated. So Nihar, I, I, I loved a piece on your website, which is how to make a coach your secret weapon. And, and I thought this was a, a really, you know, it's, it's another powerful tool of how we improve and get better. And you touched on this at the very beginning as we're coming to the end here about, you know, being aware of what you don't know or what you're not seeing. And so that's clearly one piece of it. But for those out there who are thinking about what can executive coach do for me, because the field is now proliferating with, with mm-hmm. coaches. And, you know, particularly as you're at the the upper levels where the stakes are higher. I mean, what are some of the things people should be thinking about to really make coaching effective for them as they're yeah. trying to make more impact or be more effective at work? Yeah. So I think the first thing is to remember that coaching is an investment in yourself. It's not really a product or service that you're going to buy and put on the shelf. You know, it's uh, it's about as good as what you put into it. And so I think the first question is usually to to be really clear on like, do you really want to have a partner in your journey, you know, um, as opposed to just saying, hey, I'll, I'll wing it, I'll figure it out myself, which is which is perfectly valid. And and look, I work with clients where sometimes we will work for a year and then we'll stop and then we'll work again. You know, I do think it's just like any kind of helping profession. You want to know what you're kind of needing at that moment. And and again, coaching I think is an exploratory service, so you don't have to have it all figured out now. But I think usually there's some kind of a gap between like how I feel, what I, where I am in, in my life or my, my work and where I want to be. Um, I think that with respect to, um, you know, that making sure that you're maximizing that coaching relationship and, and really getting the most out of a coach, one is to really be okay with the fact that this is about getting you better. You know, like, so one of the quotes I have in that piece is, you don't have to be sick to get better. Uh, which is by, I think, Wayne Dyer, who I, I really enjoyed his writing before he died. And, you know, the idea here is that so much of what we, you know, goes back to the criticism idea. So much of, I think, what we're conditioned to believe is that if I need a coach, I'm just, I'm not doing well. And it's, it's not true. You know, it's like going to your doctor. You're, it's preventive, preventative. You know, you're, you're going to, you're, you're getting somebody to help you look at things that you can't possibly know yourself. There's no way that you can you can know how this new leadership team that you just inherited after you got promoted to an SVP role. There's no way you can know what they think about you when you leave that room. You know, it's just 
it's impossible. And yet we think that we will. We, or, or, we'll, or we'll think like, oh, who cares? They'll, they'll figure it out. And if I don't like them, then I'll get rid of them. I mean, all types of things we tell, say in our minds about you know, what we can do to cope with the possibility that we don't get along or work well together. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, you really could have a coach to help you think about both your um, limitations and or, or, you know, your avoidances and also learn key techniques and skills that I think anybody can benefit from in terms of interpersonal connection. So that's where I would say, you know, take take off the stigma from about coaching. It's not necessary anymore. We all are investing in ourselves and and really having somebody that you you trust and can, and can also tell you the honest truth can be a super, super um, valuable weapon for you as you succeed. Niher, this has been everything that I thought it would be in the interview. And as we come to an end, I want to, I don't normally do this, but when I get a chance to be with someone like, you know, like you, I want to just do a lightning round here, if we could close with that. Okay. (laughs) So we don't need to overthink it. They can be short answers. Some personal, some I think we'll, we'll, we'll share some insights into you here. First, Philadelphia Eagles, Dallas Cowboys, or football. Don't you mean Real Madrid? (laughs) Well, Philadelphia Eagles for sure. Uh, so I live in Dallas, but I still consider myself an East Coaster. And actually, the Eagles were, uh, I always remember this because my seventh birthday, 1981, uh, January 25th, that was the first time they got to the Super Bowl. They lost to the Raiders, but I remember that very clearly because we were, I was young and we were in Philly and people were going nuts. <laughs> we were watching it at the same time. And then if really? you're like me, 2018, <laughs> when they beat yeah. the Patriots, you've got that recorded mm-hmm. and you turn it on every once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, the greatest game ever. Okay. Hoagies, subs, cheesesteak, Taylor ham, egg and cheese sandwich, or barbecue and Tex-Mex? Hoagies. Hoagies. Hoagies for sure. There we go. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Just one, you know, because you are incredibly prolific with what you write and who you reflect on. So I'm curious, who's been the biggest influence, you know, on your thinking as a coach and a thought leader? Wow. I, I read so much that I, I can't honestly say that the latest thing that I'm reading isn't the, the most important thing. Right. Recency um, bias. You, yeah, exactly. You know, I think... I, I do think that one thing I love to do is, is connect ideas yeah. and, and so patterns that I'm, that I'm seeing through different things. So I, as I mentioned, I'm a movie buff. I love pop culture. Um, I love to learn about how you art and business kind of intersect. And so, for instance, like I wrote, I wrote some articles uh, last year about leadership lessons from like a movie that George Clooney and Ben Affleck were in, The Tender Bar. Um, I wrote an article about lessons from Will Smith's bio, which was before the slap uh, last year, but it was a, a lot of cool things. And so the influence I think from that I've gotten in my work, I, I don't know where I got it from in one place, but I do think that I've learned a lot about just following your interests and following your excitement because it can kind of bring it back from a lot of different domains into your given work, whether you're a coach or even whether you're a lawyer or whether you're a doctor or whatever it might be. Yeah. This, this piece about following your interest, and we have both been heavily influenced by, by Dory Clark, and, and that's how we met. Uh, who, she mm-hmm. is absolutely amazing. And one of her pieces of advice, and I remember it, this is a piece I saw you were talking with her, she really recommends produce content, write, 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 things about that, that come to you that you feel some heat around. And your niche or your special point of view slash superpower will start to emerge. I'm curious because you've really been prolific writing. You clearly bring in and make connections, pieces from clients, real situations you can tell. Uh, What's kind of emerged for you or been surprising of of when you put those pieces out there? Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing that I've definitely learned is process over outcomes is so important. Um, really understanding that, uh, and I love the, the, um, the war of art by, uh, by Stephen Pressfield. He talks a lot about that where, you know, if you're going to be a writer, for instance, an amateur writer would wait till they're inspired to write. A professional writer is, is writing, right? Uh, they're going to write cause that's their job. Um, one, and just throw this out there. One, I always tell this to my clients, Lauren Michaels, who produced Saturday Night Live, you know, for over 40 years, every Saturday, right? They put, they create a live show from scratch on that Monday 
you know, from ideas all the way to sets and everything, and 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 the actual actors, etc. And he was once asked, you know, uh, how do you know when you're ready to go on? And he's like, we're never ready. We go on because it's 11:30 on Saturday night. And that that idea really changed my my perspective on on productivity and the idea of getting things done. You know, like Seth Godin talks a lot about shipping stuff. And I, so I've been actually even for myself, I'm trying to work on um, really having more of a cadence in my writing and really not falling in love with like I need to, the idea that I need to have the best idea. Because the other thing I was going to say, Michael, you know, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I find that when I sit down to write, more ideas start emerging than actually when I don't write, which is I'm waiting for that perfect yeah. inspiration, which you know may or may not come. Yeah, it's that that that, that action starts to drive insight. Action yes. starts to help you see connections, and then you want to capture them. But you're really good at producing them. If you don't have a cadence, you would you you fooled me there. Well, <laughs> and, and the last I, one I is. I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> and the last one is uh, we're recording this before the Oscars, so. Um, mm -hmm. Best picture, best actor, who you want to you want to make a prediction, or who should be? That's probably not going to get it, right? There's always those. I'm curious because yeah. you do follow a lot. Uh, anything you want to make a prediction on? Yeah, I will. I will say I, I I can't cover all of them, but what I will say is the best actress race was really interesting to me because I saw this movie Tar, which Kate Blanchett was in, which was phenomenal. I thought she was great. I really love her. But then there was this whole story around how. This woman, Andrea Riseborough, was in this movie that was had a really low budget, like $25,000, not budget, revenue. Was, nobody even saw it. But her friends, who are many of these best actresses, Charlize Theron, Kate Winslet, they all did a campaign on Twitter to help her because the movie was so good. And uh, I, I think it's called uh, From Leslie. I saw it, and I was blown away. So I actually think that she should win, but it, we'll see if that happens in terms of the controversy. So I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> well, we, we, this will probably air after, so we'll, we'll go back and look at it. <laughs> That's right. Nihar, best way for people to reach you, see your work, work with you? Yeah. Um, you know, they can, anybody can email me if they want. I'm simple. It's Nihar at partnerexec.com. My website is partnerexec.com. Please feel free to visit there. You can also get in touch if you want. And then LinkedIn, you know, feel free to connect or follow on LinkedIn. That's my favorite platform, so... Nihar Chaya, Fortune 50 executive coach. Thank you so much today. It's been great. Thank you, Michael. No, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwenderoth.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.